Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In an experiment. Why is light so fast? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, a new theory of small-scale friction. And the latest from the Nature Briefing. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. First up on the show, reporter Nick Petrich Howe has been finding out about the mysteries of water flow at the quantum scale. There's a mystery in the world of nanofluidics, the science of flow at the molecular scale. So it all started with reports of very fast flows of water through tiny, tiny carbon nanotubes. And so the puzzling finding with these nanotubes was the narrower the tube, the smaller the friction. This is Nikita Kavokin, a nanofluidics researcher at the Flatiron Institute in New York, USA. This faster flow through narrower carbon nanotubes is the opposite of what we're used to at the macro scale. When water flows through a garden hose, say, the narrower the hose, the more slowly it flows. So what is going on at the tiny scale? Well, you may have caught the word friction there. This resistance to motion is a lot more important at the small scale. There is a greater proportion of the water in contact with the pipe at these tiny scales. But herein lies another mystery. How is it possible to have friction when a surface is perfectly smooth? The carbon nanotubes at the heart of this mystery have what's known as atomic smoothness. They have no defects. So there's nothing really for the water to rub against to generate friction. But this week in Nature, Nikita and his colleagues have come up with a theory that they think can solve this conundrum. It turns out that there can still be friction, and this is what we call quantum friction. Now, I know what you're thinking, and no, they haven't added the word quantum and called it a day. At such tiny scales, quantum interactions between atoms are relevant. In fact, using quantum theory, the team were able to mathematically explain the fast flow in narrow tubes that has been seen in previous experiments. Their theory works like this. 
Water has a slight positive charge which fluctuates as it moves through the tube. This positive charge interacts with negatively charged electrons moving around in the solid wall of the carbon nanotube. And it turns out that the interaction between the successive instantaneous configurations of all these moving atoms, they produce friction still even though the roughness on average is zero. So even when things are perfectly smooth, at these tiny scales, friction, or in this case quantum friction, can still slow things down. Now, that's one thing, but how does it explain the fact that in narrower carbon nanotubes, the water moves more quickly? Why is there less quantum friction here? Well, carbon nanotubes are made from multiple layers. In the wider tubes, the layers are more well aligned than in the narrower tubes. This alignment allows electrons to do something known as quantum tunneling. This basically means that they can transiently move between these well aligned layers. These layer-jumping electrons can work together to have a greater pull on the water. In other words, there's more quantum friction. Whereas in the narrower tubes, the layers are less well aligned, so this doesn't occur as much, so there's less quantum friction. A similar rationale explains an equally strange finding in graphene and graphite. The other striking experimental result is that friction of water is much lower on graphene than on graphite. Now, it turns out that in graphite, the electrons can move in between the layers and they can all oscillate in sync in between those layers. On the other hand, in monolayer graphene, well, the electrons, they are confined to the single layer. They cannot move perpendicular to the layer. And so there is very low quantum friction. Of course, there's plenty of experiments to be done to confirm Nikita's theoretical explanation. But it does explain previous experimental results well. For Rada Boyer, a nanofluidics researcher who wasn't associated with this study, one of the novel things about this new paper is that it takes into account the influence of the actual tube on the water. So usually when people do simulations for nanofluidic channels, they usually worry about the fluids and the surface. But the confining material itself, the solid material, is not given so much importance. It is mostly thought of as a geometric barrier rather than contributing to the flows. So until now, the influence of the material of the tube itself on the flow hasn't really been studied. But if we understand this better, Radha says, we can then fine-tune the flow of water through these tiny tubes by carefully selecting a material based on how much quantum friction it creates. For Nikita, this new paper of flows at the small scale represents a step change in our understanding. Well, yes, I think this is really a paradigm change for fluid dynamics, because usually in hydrodynamics, well, a wall is a wall, it's simply a boundary condition. And here we find that actually the water flows near the wall, they couple to the electron flows inside the wall. And so that very subtle properties of these electron flows determine how fluid flows near the wall. So, yes, this will, I think, completely change the way we consider fluid flows at the nanoscale. That was Nikita Kavokin from the Flatiron Institute in New York in the US. You also heard from Rada Boyer from the University of Manchester here in the UK. To find out more about flows at the tiny scale, check out the paper. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Coming up on the show, dogs, large and small, and the genes that make them grow. Right now, though, it's the research highlights with Dan Fox. 
Soap bubbles aren't normally known for their longevity. But a few extra ingredients have allowed researchers to make a bubble that lasts over a year. Typically, a soap bubble bursts within a few minutes when the liquid in its shell evaporates or drains due to gravity. Longer-lived bubbles have been reported, but these required carefully controlled environments to maintain and still shrunk over time. Now, researchers have produced bubbles with a shell made of water, minuscule plastic particles and glycerol. The team monitored how the bubble's mass and shape evolved over time and report that they remained essentially unchanged for up to 465 days, more than 200,000 times longer than normal. They suggest that the plastic particles prevent gravity-induced drainage, while the glycerol counteracts evaporation by absorbing water from the surrounding air. Pop over to Physical Review Fluids to read that research in full. Hippos can recognise each other's honking voices, and if they hear a group of hippos they dislike, they react by aggressively spraying dung. Little is known about hippo communication, because in the wild, the animals are very difficult to tag and identify. To study how hippopods communicate, a group of researchers played recordings of hippo wheeze-honk sounds for seven pods in the Maputo Special Reserve in Mozambique. They measured each group's response to the broadcast voices of hippos that were members of the same group, neighbours or strangers. The animals acknowledged the voices by making their own sounds and spraying dung, an aggressive response. But they were usually less aggressive when responding to the voices of other pods that lived on the same lake than when responding to strangers living on other lakes. The authors say that hippo communication should be taken into account when animals are relocated for conservation purposes. For example, biologists could prepare a settled pod for new neighbours by playing recordings of the incoming animals' voices. Read that research in full in Current Biology. Finally on the show, it's time for the briefing chat, where we discuss a couple of stories from the wider world of science featured in the Nature Briefing. So, Ben, what have you found for us to discuss this time? Well, Shalmany, I've got a story from Nature that's based on some analysis published in The Lancet, and it's looking at the global death toll associated with antimicrobial resistance. And in this case, the researchers were looking at bacteria that were resistant to antibiotics. And, well, it makes for some sobering reading. Gosh, and and yes, so we do occasionally hear about antibiotic resistant strains of things but globally what is the kind of scale of the problem then? Well this is analysis that looked at 2019 and I guess the the top line is really that they estimate that almost 5 million people died from an illness in which resistant bacteria played a part and of that 1.27 million deaths were caused directly as a result of a resistant infection and kind of putting that into some context those numbers are kind of higher than the yearly deaths caused by either hiv aids or by malaria oh wow i mean i feel like that's bigger than i thought so that's far beyond just mrsa for example yeah that's absolutely right Shalmini. so there's been a bunch of of studies looking at antimicrobial resistance but maybe few have tried to look at a global scale and in this case what they did was they they took loads of different data sets from different places and put them together and did some modeling to come to these numbers and you're right there are a bunch of bacteria that are involved in fact six bacterial pathogens were responsible for three quarters 
of these deaths. Uh, e. coli and Staphylococcus aureus were the top two, and E. coli was responsible for an estimated 200,000 deaths. And is this all because we hear about basically misuse of antibiotics, things like if you don't finish a treatment or antibiotics being overused for livestock? Are those the kind of things that is causing these massive numbers? Certainly that they are some of the reasons, Shamda, that they, they talk about in the report but there are other things as well you know lack of access to sanitation in places or lack of access to diagnostics or or surveillance and and what have you so these are things that can drive the spread and increase in resistance and what is interesting as well is that when this is looked at at a global scale there are some discrepancies that leap out as well for example antimicrobial resistant deaths were estimated to be highest in sub-saharan africa and the number of resistant infections were estimated to be higher in low-income countries compared to wealthier countries and again i think some of the reasons behind that are the things we've discussed and also you know lack of access to the latest drugs and vaccines and what have you and does the fact that this is now a much bigger picture global view give any assistance in sort of where to target this problem where to focus well i think shamani it's it's interesting because it gives you know a sense of scale to this problem and i think for a long time people have been saying that resistance to drugs is a serious issue that needs to be addressed and in this work they say that back in 2016 another report came out suggesting that by 2050 there might be 10 million deaths a year as a result of resistance. But this new estimate suggests we're already well on the way to that and things might be accelerating quicker than anyone realised. So policy work and healthcare work needs to be done sort of right now to really get on top of this. Well, hopefully we'll be hearing more about some actions that are being taken to tackle this and we can report on those in the podcast. I have something um, a bit lighter for you this week. I have a fun story that I read in Nature based on a current biology paper and I very much enjoyed reading this one because it's all about why some dogs are really little some dogs are really massive fun fact dogs differ more in size than any other mammal species on the planet that's the sort of fact that i come to these briefing chats for (laughs) i always love when we do our animal stories okay then so the difference in size from a dog so i'm imagining a chihuahua Chihuahua. and maybe uh maybe a great dane or something at the other end of the scale what's causing the difference between the two well i think the the general idea has always been look humans domesticating the dogs have obviously created in a way all sorts of different sort of shapes and features in in these pets so uh, people thought okay a lot of this difference is human driven but these particular researchers wanted to know a little bit about the genetics behind it Um, and this is obviously very complex because there's never going to be a single gene that affects size but they have found one particular bit of dna one particular variant that they're very excited about and they think is really key for some sort of broad size distinctions and what is this segment of dna then what what is it doing so it's just this little bit of dna that itself doesn't code for a protein it just makes some non-coding rna but that rna is involved in controlling a gene essentially there's a IGF-1 gene and IGF-1 protein, which is a growth hormone. And so there are two alleles, sort of different versions of this little stretch of DNA. And there's essentially a sort of big one and a small one. And if you have double small, you're more likely to be a little dog. And if you have double big, you're more likely to be huge. And if you have one of each, then you might be more likely to be a medium-sized dog. And presumably then they must have sequenced the genomes of a lot of dogs then to find this out. What what are we talking about in terms of the sort of experimental setup? Yep, so we've got a lot of genome sequencing. But interestingly enough, not just domestic modern dogs. We've got 230 modern dog breeds. We've got some ancient dogs. We've also got wolves, coyotes, other canids. And 
really interestingly, and this quite surprised the researchers, was that the actual alleles that they found didn't originate in domesticated dogs. They're found in these other species. So, for example, things like coyotes and foxes tend to have two of the sort of small-bodied version of this bit of DNA, whereas wolves, they think, maybe slightly later, uh, evolved the big version. I mean, it sounds like things are kind of wrapped up, I guess, when it comes to a doggy body size. I mean, is this kind of the end of the story here now, Shamna? Is there more genetics that needs to be done? I mean, I can't think of the last time that scientists said right, we understand everything now. Our researcher is done. No, there's lots more that they're keen on unpicking in terms of what's actually contributing to body size. Because, you know, as we said, this is one factor. So the IGF-1 gene maybe accounts for 15% of the variation between the body size of different dog breeds. And there's a nice quote from the researcher at the end of the article here saying basically that there's no one mutation that makes a wolf chihuahua sized. (laughs) Very nice. Well, Shamini, thank you for bringing that one to the briefing chat today and listeners will have links to both of those stories in the show notes as always and we'll also have a link on where you can sign up for the nature briefing if you'd like stories like these delivered directly to your inbox then that's where you should go to sign up that's all for this week's show but before we go i just want to mention there is a video i've made that's out now on our youtube channel it's about something called the Leidenfrost effect which is the thing that makes little water droplets skitter over very hot surfaces you might have seen it if you're sort of cooking in a wok and for a long time scientists have actually been trying to overcome this phenomenon is it makes cooling things down very difficult so in this video researchers may have done just that by creating a fancy armour that defends against the Leidenfrost effect. So we'll pop a link to that in the show notes for you. Yeah, I'd recommend watching that because you can see some of Charmony's cookware live (laughs) in action being demonstrated. My poor (laughs) wok. Well, let's leave it there then. As always, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast or you can send us an email. We're podcast at nature.com. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Charmony Bundell. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.